Well, good morning, students. It's good to be with you again. Uh, Another Sunday, another Lord's Day, another opportunity for us to study God's Word and to be changed by the power of the Spirit as we open up His Word and read the text and understand what it is that God has for us. We've been going through the book of Exodus, and over the last couple of weeks, we've been learning about um, the creation of the tabernacle, the creation of the garments for the priests, the creation of the tools that priests would use. And in a few weeks, we're going to get to the actual creating of those things. But in the middle, in between the commands that God gives and the actual practice of the people, there's a very, very familiar story here in Exodus chapter 32 of Israel and the golden calf. So if you have a Bible, uh, I invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 32. While you're turning there, let's just get some context for where we are. Israel, God's people, were enslaved in Egypt. The sons and daughters of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob throughout the centuries had gathered together in Egypt and they became slaves to Pharaoh and to his people. God heard their cries. He heard their their oppression and he remembered his promise that he gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so through Moses, he redeemed the people of Israel, out of slavery, out of oppression, out of that wickedness, and led them through the Red Sea, through the wilderness, to Mount Sinai. That's the mountain of God. And a few chapters back, uh, all of Israel heard God speak the Ten Commandments. So the majority of the law, the majority of the instruction that we read about in Exodus is between God and Moses. But the Ten Commandments are what all of Israel heard from the voice of God there on the mountain. And after they heard the Ten Commandments, Moses asked the people of Israel, do you accept this covenant? Do you agree to live by these laws in order to receive God's blessing, knowing that if you disobey these laws, if you break the covenant, then there will be curses and judgment for you. And and all of Israel said, yes, we, we want to live by this law. We want to enter into this covenant with Yahweh. We want to be his people and we want God to be our God. So Moses takes blood from a sacrifice, he sprinkles it on an altar, and then he also throws it onto the people of Israel, signifying that this covenant has been made between God and Israel. So Moses goes back up on the mountain and receives some more instruction, and that's where we've been over the last couple of weeks, hearing about how the tabernacle ought to be built and the tools used in the tabernacle and the garments of the priests. That's what's been going on for the last 40 days and nights in the story of Exodus. So Moses has been on the mountain for 40 days and nights, supernaturally sustained because he didn't take any food or drink with him. And so the people of Israel start to get antsy. They start to get anxious. They start to wonder, where is Moses? Uh, What's going on? What are we supposed to do? So last week, we ended our text in Exodus 31 by seeing in verse 18 that God gave to Moses tablets of stone. And on those tablets the law was written by the finger of God. So Moses is wrapping up his time of instruction with God. He's about to head back down to the mountain, but we're going to see today a a different perspective. We're going to start off from the perspective of the people of Israel. So not where Moses is, but where Israel is on the base of the mountain. And we're going to get a clear look in Exodus 32 of the insanity of idolatry. The idea that we would run after and worship false gods, that we would find idols that we would give our allegiance and our worship to. We're going to see in Exodus 32 that it's 
insanity. It doesn't make any sense. It's foolishness. We're going to see also that God is both merciful and just. And that's a theme that we'll see all throughout Scripture, that these aren't, these aren't attributes of God that are somehow opposed to one another, but they exist together, that He is both merciful and justice, that He gives out mercy and justice. And through this well-known story of Israel and the golden calf, hopefully you and I will be given some tools and some questions to ask to help diagnose ourselves For our own desires and our own hearts often are bent towards idolatry. Oftentimes we want to go after things that are not God. We want to give our worship over. We want to let our desires run after things that aren't pleasing to the Lord and aren't the Lord Himself. So we start off in Exodus 32, starting in verse 1. Remember, Moses is still on the mountain. He's just received the tablets. The people of Israel are... Uh, encamped at the base of Mount Sinai. That's where we start off in verse 1. Let's read together. It says, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Let's pray before we go any further. God in heaven, Lord, I pray that we would come before you and before your word this morning, this time, in humility. That we would come before your word, your truth, aware of our desperate need of a Savior. God, I pray that we would come before you aware of our fleshly desires that run after things that are not honoring and not pleasing to you. That that oftentimes our hearts are constantly creating new idols to to lust after and to run after instead of you. God, I, I pray that you would help us to see that there is no way because of our sin that we could ever, ever keep your covenant. So Lord, we need you. We need you to provide grace and mercy in our time of need. I pray that as we read this text and learn about idolatry and and learn about your forgiveness and your mercy and your justice, that it would cause us to lift our eyes up and behold a greater covenant, a greater mediator, a greater forgiveness that we find in Jesus. Help us by your Holy Spirit to see all of these things In Christ's name, amen. All right, so in these first six verses, there's a lot going on. Israel got impatient. Israel got impatient. They wondered if Moses was even alive after 40 days up on that mountain. And so they thought, maybe we just need to move on. Maybe we need to find something new. We need to go in a new direction. So they took matters into their own hands and approached Aaron and said to Aaron, you make God's for us. That's what you need to do. 
you, the priest, the Levite, you need to make gods for us who shall go before us. Right? So, so here's what you need to see, that, that for the people of Israel right now, God is not someone to be worshipped. God is not someone to love. God is not someone to follow. In this text, in this passage, at this time, God is someone to be used. The people of Israel want to use God for their own pursuits. They want to have someone who is powerful to go before them so that they can be safe, so that they can be victorious, so that they can be successful. All of these things are wrapped up in this command that Israel gives to Aaron to make gods who will go before us. And they also failed to see that God was the one who brought them out of Egypt, not Moses. I mean, they're placing all of their trust all of their confidence in Moses. And because Moses hasn't come down off the mountain, they go, well, we've, we've lost our faith. We've lost our trust in Moses. We better just move on to something else or someone else. And they fail to see that Moses isn't the one who brought them out of Egypt. God is the one who saved them. God is the one who redeemed them. God is the one who entered into a covenant with them. And they've forsaken all of these things because they have idolatry in their hearts. They're desiring after other things to think that and they think that those things are going to give them joy and satisfaction and safety and security and Aaron fails to trust in God as well in this text he makes the most of this bad situation by saying well give to me all of your gold and he goes and fashions this golden calf now remember where did this gold come from remember God promised the people of Israel when you leave out of Egypt you will not go out empty-handed but I will cause the Egyptians to find favor in you and they will bless you. So, so God orchestrates sovereignly this, this gift, this blessing that they actually were going to leave Egypt full of their treasures and their gold. So you see what's happening here? Israel is using the gifts that God has given them to sin against God. I mean, they're using the gifts and the resources that God has blessed them with in order to commit idolatry against God. And students, we do the same thing, right? I mean, God gives all of us all good things. Every good and perfect thing comes from above, the coming down from the Father of lights, James tells us. And so all of the resources that you've been given, that I've been given, all of the opportunities that you and I have been given, all of the, the blessings of common grace that you and I have been given, the health and the material wealth that we have, the time that we have, all of these things are gifts that God gives us to turn around and bring Him glory with. And when we sin against God, we're taking His gifts, we're taking His blessings, and we're using it to commit treason against Him. That's what idolatry is. It's, it's committing treason against our King. Like R.C. Sproul, a now deceased pastor and theologian, in his classic book, The Holiness of God, argued that, that sin ultimately is cosmic treason that even the smallest sin is worthy of eternal punishment because of the one that we're sinning against or we're sinning against the king of the universe the king of kings so Aaron and the people of Israel create this golden calf and they begin to worship at that altar now Aaron for his to some I guess to his credit at least in verse 5, it says, When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, that's the golden calf, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, to Yahweh. So Aaron at least is thinking, I am worshiping 
God. I'm, I'm worshiping Yahweh. But the problem is that God has been really, really clear about how he ought to be worshipped. Remember, one of the first commandments is that you shall not make a graven image for worship. God doesn't need to be depicted in any kind of way when we worship him. And so by creating this golden calf, they have failed in this foundational commandment. And so the next day, they offer sacrifices to the golden calf, and it quickly devolved into greater sin. Now, at the end of verse 6, uh, some of your Bibles are going to say that they uh, sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Or they uh, indulged in uh, revelry. Or they committed pagan revelry. Or they, or they partied. I mean, it, there's a, a bunch of different words there at the end that your Bible translation may use. Regardless, the worship, the worship that was being offered before this golden calf by the people of Israel was rank sin. It was debauchery. It was immorality. It is probably a kind of frenzied adultery that gives a physical depiction, a physical picture of what has actually taken place in the heart of Israel. Right? So all throughout the Bible, idolatry and adultery are connected. It's this idea that we've entered into a kind of covenant faithfulness with our God, but we have committed adultery against him by worshiping someone else or something else. So oftentimes the Bible will use the language of adultery or the language of immorality to talk about idolatry. And that's exactly what's happening here. And that's exactly where idolatry always leads. What you and I learn from the Bible, if we look at all of the Bible, is that we're constantly worshiping something. I mean, you and I are constantly worshiping something. And in our own sin, left to ourselves, we usually are worshiping ourselves, right? We're usually putting ourselves as the ultimate thing in our life, the, the captain of our soul, so to speak. And so this means that you and I will do whatever it takes to satisfy the desires of our heart. Even if it costs us dearly, even if it costs us everything, left to ourselves, left to our own sin, we will run after the desires of our heart until it destroys us. I mean, you think about the, the parable of the prodigal son. That's exactly what he did, right? He, he longed after uh, the pleasures of life and he squandered his inheritance. He, he uh, basically hated his father. He wanted, to, uh, he wanted his inheritance before his father died, which basically meant he was telling his father, I wish you were dead, right? Because he wanted to run after his own desires. And what happens? He, he squanders it all. He finds himself around the pigs, the most unclean place he could be for a Jewish man. And he realizes, he, it says that the text says that he literally came to himself and said, this, is, this can't be all that there is. This can't be life. I can go back to my father. Idolatry leads to death. And it seems good. It seems right. It seems like our desires are going to lead to joy. It seems like our desires are going to lead us to happiness. But unfortunately, our desires in our hearts, our, our fleshly sinful desires, they will never be satisfied with sin. They'll, they'll never be satisfied. will never be uh, complete. They'll, they'll never be fulfilled. Our, our thirst for sin will never be quenched. So we keep on going. And that's what the story of the golden calf is for. It's, it's placed right in between God's instructions for the tabernacle and the building of the tabernacle. And it's placed in between those two stories on purpose. 
It shows you and me that when we try to live our lives outside of God's commands, when we try to take matters into our own hands and say, I'm going to run after what seems right in my own eyes, it leads to disaster. It leads to disaster. And, and placing that story where it is also shows us that God knows what we need before we do. Remember, God has been telling Moses for the last 40 days, here is how your... Uh, Here's how the nation of Israel ought to worship me. Here's how the nation of Israel ought to live. Here's how they will live in such a way that I will bless them, that I will satisfy their desires. Right? God knows what his people need even before they do. Obeying God's word will lead to blessing, but that's the opposite of idolatry. Idolatry is worshiping something other than the Lord and following something other than the Lord no matter where it leads you. But obedience to God's word and obedience to his commands is saying, God, you are the king, you are the Lord, I am not. I, I'm not ultimate in my life. God, you are. And so I want to follow your word and obey your commands more than anything. And when we live that kind of life, this is what this story tells us and what the whole story of Exodus tells us, when we live our lives in that way, we will have lives that are full of blessing. Israel's false worship and debauchery are clearly covenant-breaking acts. Blessing has been forfeit, and all that remains for them is judgment. So, we see that Israel has sinned in the camp, but next we're going to see that God actually relents His wrath. God relents His wrath. <coughs> because judgment is what He has in mind. Right? These people deserve to be judged. They deserve to be destroyed. And we see that as we pick up our text here in verse 7. It says this, And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Now we need to remember that Israel had just broken the covenant and they deserved the judgment of God. All of Israel deserved justice. They deserved to be condemned because of their sin, because of their breaking of the covenant. That's the punishment that they agreed upon when they entered into this covenant. They do not deserve at this point to live as God's people since they had trampled on his covenant and committed spiritual adultery in the meantime. Israel, this text says, has corrupted themselves. They ran after false idols and left the Lord. And God says to Moses that Israel is a stiff-necked 
people. Literally, they are hard to lead. I mean, you think about uh, controlling oxen as you're treading out uh, a field. And if they're on a yoke, if they're stiff-necked, you can't control them. In the same way, Israel is a stiff-necked people. They won't be led. They're resistant to God's leadership and guidance. Now, if anyone has learned this already in the story of Exodus, it's Moses, right? Because over and over and over again in the wilderness, Israel has done what? They've complained. They've complained against Moses. They've, they've criticized Moses. They've, they've called out that God just wants to bring them out to kill them. I mean, over and over, if anybody knows that Israel's stiff-necked, it's Moses. And so God would be just in destroying Israel. But Moses intervenes. He reminds God of his promise and of his name among the nations. He intercedes on Israel's behalf. He stands before God and says, Lord, remember your promise. Remember your people. Remember your plan that you have promised by your own name. You've sworn that it would happen. And God relents his wrath. God doesn't destroy them. His anger goes away. Now, what's going on here? Right? Did God change his mind? Was he this quick-tempered deity that was going to destroy everybody but got talked out of it? I don't think that's what's happening. Because when we think about God's character and nature throughout the entirety of the Bible, one of the things that we learn is that God is unchanging. The theological term for that is that he is immutable. Nothing causes change in God because God can't be affected by anything. He is constant. He is perfect in every way. It's why the scriptures say he's the same yesterday and today and forever. God's eternal decree always comes to pass. But we also know that God is gracious, that God is forgiving, that he's merciful, that he's compassionate. And so this conversation between God and Moses reveals all of these things about God, but it also shows us something about Moses, right? Moses remembered the covenant. In this instance, Moses could have said, God, you're right. These people are stiff-necked. You should kill them and start over with me. But that's not what Moses did. He remembered the promise. He called for mercy for a people who did not deserve mercy. He, he asked God to be merciful to a people who deserved his wrath. And after the wanderings in the wilderness, you would think that Moses would like the idea of some judgment coming. He would like the idea of God almost coming to his aid and to his side. But instead, he goes to God on their behalf and confesses the truth about who God is. He says to God, God, you always keep your promises. I know that. I know that you always keep your word. And the promises that you've made to Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, you're going to keep because that's who you are. So God's relenting of his anger, his relenting of his wrath, signifies that Moses truly understood the situation, that he clearly believed the covenant. And he believed that God would have to be the one to uphold that covenant. And you think about us as Christians, right? You think about our life as uh, believers in a new covenant with Christ, that Jesus is our intercessor, He's our mediator. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, constantly proclaiming over you and me that if we are His, the wrath of God is gone. God's anger, once and for all, has relented toward us. 
all that is left for you and me in Christ is the benefits of a new and better covenant. It's blessing and eternal life. It's, it's the joy of knowing that we will be with God forever. So can you imagine I mean, how much better our covenant is? That, that we know that we can't keep that covenant. We know that we can't come to the table and contribute. And so we're trusting that Jesus completes the work for us. That he upholds the covenant on our behalf. So God relents his anger and doesn't destroy them. But in the meantime, can you imagine, uh, I mean, you just imagine that, that Moses was the one who wrote down this book, Exodus. Could you imagine Israel reading the story afterward, right? Israel was going to hear the law. They were going to hear the, the Torah, the, the first five books of the Bible. They would hear it read. They would read it themselves. They would not have known this story. They would not have known that God was this close to destroying them all and starting over with Moses. And yet, Moses interceded on their behalf. Moses stood in the gap and said, God, forgive them. Forgive them. It, almost echoing and almost foreshadowing Jesus proclaiming, God, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. God, you have to be the one to uphold the covenant. So Israel is spared. God's mercy is shown. But next we see the covenant clearly has been broken. So Moses goes down from the mountain back to the camp where Israel is committing idolatry. He goes down to confront them and put an end to their sin. So let's pick up in verse 15 of Exodus 32. It says, Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not, your anger of my, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Well, <clears throat> we've heard a lot of excuses before for sin, but Aaron's is a classic. We'll get to that here in just a moment. First, in this text, we see that the covenant's been broken. Joshua and Moses could hear the sin of Israel before they could see it. Now, I don't want to lean too far into this and, and make something an application that isn't there, but I think this holds true for you and me. There's a principle here, and that is that Sometimes there are signs of our sinfulness that we don't know exist. We think that we have our sin so hidden. And yet, there may be instances, there may be signs in which people can perceive our sin 
without us ever knowing. Right? The, the people of Israel didn't know that Moses and Joshua could hear their revelry, could hear their debauchery, but they could. And the fact is, some of us are simply better at hiding our sin than others. All of us, all of us have sin in our hearts. And some of us are just better at hiding it. Some of us sin in more open ways. Some of us sin in more hidden ways. But what we need as Christians, what we need as believers, is to find brothers and sisters around us who know us, who can see the truth of who we are in a way that they're able to tell when something's wrong and in a way that they can ask hard questions that we might be vulnerable to have our hearts exposed Right? So, so Russell Moore, he's uh, taught here before. He's the president of the ERLC, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, he's a theologian, he's a professor, Bible teacher, he's a scholar. And um, there's this great story of Russell Moore uh, when he would give marriage counseling. Right? So, so two uh, people, man and a woman, they're a couple, they're engaged to be married, and Russell Moore has them in uh, sessions for marriage counseling. And, and I, I know that none of you are married yet, but... but um, this is good. You need counseling. You need someone to prepare you for marriage. And so Russell Moore would, would do this with these young couples, usually like seminary couples. So they're Christians. They love Jesus. They love one another. They want to be godly. They want to be holy. Uh, they don't want to sin. They want to honor Christ in their marriage. And, and one of the big questions and, and exercises that Russell Moore would give to these couples is that he would say this, if you were going to commit adultery, how would you get away with it? And this question would, would catch everyone off guard because in no, in no universe would they have thought that they want to commit adultery against their, uh, their fiancé, against the one that they want to marry, they want to be with for the rest of their life. And Russell Moore asks them the, this question. He says, if you were going to commit adultery, if you were going to cheat on her, if you were going to cheat on him, how would you do it? And, and how would you try to get away with it? So what's the point of this question? The point is, is that we need to know our tendencies towards sin and those who love us need to be able to see our tendencies towards sin. Not so that they can judge, so that they can help guide and direct towards holiness and towards Christ-likeness. We need to be known by one another and we need to know one another. Well, Moses saw the camp, he saw the idol, he saw the sin. And he was ready to confront his people. He was ready to confront the nation of Israel on their idolatry. It says here that his anger burned hot, just like God's anger in verse 10. And so he threw the stone tablets of God's law down and they broke at the foot of the mountain. Now, in movies or in different stories, you might read that this is like Moses almost throwing a temper tantrum. He's just so mad, he just throws the tablets down and he breaks them. But I don't, I don't think that's what's happening. I think something more is going on here. Right? Moses is witnessing with his eyes, not, not just hearing from the Lord, but he's seeing for himself the people of Israel breaking the covenant. I mean, right now they are doing away with the covenant that just a few days before they had promised to uphold. The law that Moses held in his hands with these tablets had been destroyed. And so he threw down the tablets Israel needed to see the weight of their sin. And the way that he could show them was by breaking the law, literally breaking the law in front of their law breaking. So next, Moses destroys the idol, 
right? He, he makes them crush up the calf into powder. He puts the powder in water and he makes all the people of Israel drink contaminated water. And this seems odd to us, right? This seems weird, kind of harsh. But Moses is leading the people of Israel to literally destroy the idol and to make sure that it can never come back. Right? He doesn't just melt down the gold. It's not like he melts down the gold because it's valuable and because it's precious and creates new tools or creates rings or creates earrings that he can give back. No, he destroys the gold completely. And then Aaron gives his defense. He gives his excuse. Uh, and it should be understood by us. As, as I read that text, you should hear in that text this fact. Aaron is ridiculous. Right? Aaron is acting like a fool. This is, it's comical. It, this is a humorous story. Right? First, he tries to butter Moses up, right? Moses comes in, he's hot, he's burning mad, he's just thrown down the tablets, he just made everybody drink water with gold in it. Then he turns to Aaron and he goes, how could you let this happen? How did you, what, what happened that you would allow them to commit such a great sin? And Aaron goes, uh, uh, my Lord, right? First he butters Moses up. He flatters him and says, oh, my, my Lord, don't be mad at me, right? So he, he butters Moses up, he flatters him by calling him Lord. Then he blames Israel. He says, oh, you know, you know these people have their minds set on evil. It's not me, it, it's them, right? So, so his idolatry, his complicity is, is, tried, is, is covered up, at least uh, he attempts to cover it up through flattery, through blame shifting. And then finally, he just straight up lies to Moses, right? He says, well, yeah, I told them to give me the gold and I, I threw the gold in the fire and out came this calf, right? Like, like a magical thing has taken place. So flattery, blame shifting, and lying, just straight lying. These are the ways that Aaron tries to cover up his own sin. Now, what does, this, what does this tell you and me? I mean, it's, it's almost kind of funny as we think about it, but the reality is what this text tells us is that when we try to defend our sin, we look ridiculous. When we try to defend our sin, we look like fools because we are. When you try to defend your sin, or if I try to defend my sin, I am acting like a fool because sin is foolishness. Sin is ridiculous. It doesn't make sense. And so when we need to try to hide our sin... What we're, we're willing to do is we're willing to make ourselves look ridiculous before we would just admit the truth, that we've sinned, that we've, fa we've fallen short of God's glory. According to this text, and according to what our own hearts reveal about ourselves, we don't need to blame, or lie, or flatter someone else. We need to repent. We need to turn from our sin. We need to be forgiven. And that's exactly what Israel needs. They need to be forgiven. So finally, we see in this story of Exodus 32, justice and mercy meeting. Justice and mercy meeting. Justice and judgment cannot be neglected. If God is just, then he must always be just. So Moses calls for the people to make a choice. He tells all of Israel, you make a choice. Yahweh or other gods. The God of Israel, something else. Let's read verse 25. It says, And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, 
Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from, the, from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. Now, this is a harsh text. This is a heavy text. But Moses calls for Israel to make a decision. Those who are going to follow Yahweh, who are on the Lord's side, come to Moses, he says. Come to me. Now, as most big groups do when they're asked a, a question uh, like this, they split into groups. Right? The first group, the Levites, stand beside Moses and say, we're affirming our commitment to Yahweh. We're affirming our commitment to the covenant. The second group stood opposed to Moses. And this was the group that was going to be killed by the Levites. So don't just think that uh, the Levites are indiscriminately killing Israelites. No, he's specifically telling, Moses is specifically telling these people, you have to go after those who have committed themselves to not follow Yahweh, right? So there's only 3,000 men who fell, right? Now we know that the people of Israel numbers in the millions right now. So in the grand scheme of things, this is a very small number, but it is a significant number because it's a number of people who have committed themselves to not follow Moses, to not follow Yahweh, and to go their own way. Moses called for the Levites to kill these idolaters. Now, we may see this as a harsh judgment. We may think that, it, that Moses is going overboard, that it's too much. But notice what's at stake in this text. Notice what's at stake in this story. There at the foot of Mount Sinai, Israel had been infected with idolatry and that had been infiltrated with idol worshipers who explicitly neglect Yahweh and His law. So like a cancer, if not treated, if not removed, it would spread and destroy. So these Israelites would have continued to contaminate the people of God and continue to lead them astray. So like the golden calf right before, Moses calls for these idolaters to be completely destroyed. Like a tumor riddled with cancer, for the sake of the survival of the body, it has to be cut out and removed. So there's a group, the Levites, who are affirming their commitment to Yahweh. There's a, a group that are neglecting Yahweh's covenant that are destroyed, but that leaves then a third group that's not explicitly mentioned in this text. And this third group is the vast majority of the people of Israel who are caught in the middle. They're neither hot nor cold. They're, they're not to the right or to the left. They're, they're stuck. They, they've obviously committed sin, but they're not willing to say that they want to leave Yahweh. They, they want to be brought back into right relationship. They want to be brought back into the covenant. They were complicit in false worship, but they were not intending to lead Israel astray. So what does Moses do? What, what can be done? He, he, we keep reading in verse 30. It says, The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. 
Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will, forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. So Moses goes back before God to see if he can make atonement for Israel. Literally, that that word signifies this idea of of covering over the people of Israel. He he wants to cover them and, and be a covering for them before God. So Moses stands before the Lord as a representative and as a mediator. He stands before God representing the people of Israel. Now the people of Israel were faithless. They were lawbreakers. They were sinners. They were idolaters. And Moses, in this instance, had done nothing wrong. He had not followed after the false worship. He didn't worship the golden calf. He didn't offer sacrifices to an idol. And yet, he stands with Israel He stands alongside them. He joins their number before God and says, God, treat me like you would treat them. If you're going to destroy them, destroy me. God ends up not destroying the people. Instead, he calls on Moses once again to lead Israel in all that he's commanded. And although we see there in verse 35, a plague of some some kind rather visits those who committed the idolatry, they were spared. They were afflicted, but they were not destroyed. They continued to live as God's chosen people. Why do we need to know this? Why do we need to know this story? Why do we need to see especially what's going on here at the end? I think we need to see it because it's the gospel. Students, this is the gospel right here in Exodus 32. Because you and I, like the people of Israel, have sinned against God. And we don't deserve anything except judgment from him the wages of sin romans tells us is death we all deserve death we all deserve his judgment and his justice and yet like moses we have a representative we have a mediator a better mediator jesus christ who came to earth to be numbered among his people right that's the whole purpose of the baptism of john sometimes we wonder why did jesus need to be baptized it's so that he could be identified with his people. He would be baptized with them. That he would stand with them. And so Jesus stood before God, in a way, on the cross to cover us, to make atonement for us. His righteousness was credited to us. We didn't earn it. Jesus earned it. We didn't obey. Jesus obeyed. And his obedience, his righteousness, is given to us. Now, God doesn't deal with us based on our sin. He deals with us based on Jesus' righteousness. Now, while that does not mean that we will not face consequences for sin in this life, just like the plague here in Exodus 32, it does mean that we've been saved from God's wrath. So, so now, the, what we experience from God is not wrath, it's discipline. What, what you and I experience from God when we go through trials and temptations is not punishment. It's not wrath. It's not anger from God towards us. 
It's loving correction. It's discipline. In the same way a shepherd would take his staff and hit the side of a sheep to lead it away from walking off of a cliff, God will use discipline. He will use suffering in our life to lead us into blessing, into life instead of death. Idolatry kills. Sin leads to death. The story of the golden calf serves as a visual reminder of one of John Owen's most famous quotes. He was a Puritan in the 17th century, and he said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. So students, if you're carrying hidden sin, unconfessed secret sin in your life, know this, God is not fooled. God sees your heart. He sees the sin that you've committed. He sees the sin that you're hiding. He sees your every fault. And He knows your faults better than you do. He knows your heart. But He's also provided a way for you to be forgiven. He's provided a way for you to receive His mercy and His grace rather than His judgment. So come to Jesus. And you can be forgiven. I mean, John tells us in 1 John, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what's promised to us in the gospel. So students, put your sin to death. Come to Jesus as your Redeemer, as your Savior, as your Mediator, and put your sin to death. Commit like the Levites. Commit like Moses to walk in His ways as a redeemed people. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank You for Your Word. We pray now that you would use it to transform us, to root out any secret sin in our hearts, to help us to not run after idols, but instead to worship and follow you above everything else. We pray that your Holy Spirit would move among us, would transform our minds and our hearts this day. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.